0: Hello, I'm Simon Talbot.
1: And I'm Wendy Dean.
0: And this is Moral Matters.
1: Since the start of the pandemic, we've been thinking about the disruptions that we've seen in the supplies that we have available. And we've talked back and forth between us about how just-in-time supply chains work, or or maybe don't, especially in a crisis, and whether we want to think about making changes to that you know, how purchasing gets done or how hospital supply chains work as we emerge from the pandemic.
0: So we've invited Rudy Lushner, who is an associate professor of supply chain management at Rutgers University to talk to us about the supply chain. And be warned, this is not an uh, super in-depth uh, discussion, but it skirts the surface of supply chain for those of us who started out knowing nothing about it at all.
1: So let's have a listen.
0: Rudy, thanks so much for joining us today. As an expert in supply chain management and supply chain finance, Wendy and I are both excited to talk to you and interested to hear some of your thoughts on both supply chain in general and healthcare, but also some of the things that have happened through COVID and through the last, frankly, two years at this stage. So can you give us a little bit of a background about what is supply chain? I mean, uh, a lot of people listening to this are uh, healthcare experts, but absolutely no knowledge of supply chain. And We'd love to hear some background.
2: Well, first of all, Simon, thanks for having me on. And uh, when you think about the term supply chain management or supply chain, at least in the last year or so, everybody has heard it because that's the universal reason why we can't get what we want. (laughs) So um, uh, a supply chain, if you look at the formal definition, uh, um, a supply chain is a network of companies that are working together and ultimately when you or i are going to the store to pick up an item or we hit the button on a web screen to have it sent to our house that it actually shows up and every product and to to a certain extent services also have a supply chain behind them so um, in some cases the supply chain is two or three companies uh, working together maybe if you buy carrots um, and in other cases, it could be ten or fifteen tiers deep. so each uh, each company um, forms a tier and and it goes ten steps uh, or fifteen steps down into somebody digging up a raw metal out of the ground, and then ultimately it becomes a car. So um, th- this network of companies has to work together to get the final product to the final customer. And um, what we also have to keep in mind, supply chains are not just moving product, but they're also exchanging information and money gets exchanged. So you mentioned supply chain finance, that was the reason for the term supply chain finance.
0: Uh huh. So in healthcare, obviously, there are aspects of the supply chain that are critical, right? Um, are there any unique aspects of healthcare supply chain, healthcare finance, um, or anything that um, is unique in healthcare to, to supply chain?
2: Well, there are a lot of unique aspects, especially in, uh, in, in the way healthcare is done in, in the US, which is uh, slightly different from other countries. But um, when you're looking at healthcare as a broad field, there's multiple buckets, pharmaceuticals being one, Uh, Healthcare supplies being a different one with pharmaceuticals. You add layers of complexity because uh, we have the uh, organizations like the FDA and so so on, they they mandate certain rules in terms of you have to have X amount of months of inventory on hand uh, of certain drugs and and so on. So um, it adds uh, a, a lot of rules to the system, but the criticality of you possibly having to go into a hospital and uh, getting some treatment, your your physician and your healthcare providers need to have all of the tools at at their disposal. So the what what we would call a stockout, i.e., not having an item available, the cost of a stockout is life or death, possibly. Or if, if you're running out of your favorite type of cereal, may I understand. <laughs> for, for some people, that is pretty serious,
0: serious. but yeah.
2: <laughs> it probably hasn't ended anybody's life, I don't
0: think. Um, so is a stockout uh, basically a back order?
2: Well, a, a stockout is, the item is not available when it is needed. It's it could result in a back order. So, a back order meaning it's going to show up whenever it's available. But it could, I mean, in, in a store, it could also mean I'm not buying this right now. And I've, I've done it myself. I walk into a store looking for something very specific and then I can't find it. And I said, I don't want it anymore. I'm done. Yeah. Which is, I mean, for, for the stoner, store owner, the manufacturer, it's, it's all bad things. So uh, you you have to to treat them pretty seriously, but uh, you probably don't necessarily have that luxury in a a healthcare setting in most cases.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things we see in healthcare or one of the terms that we have heard more recently that people weren't so familiar with this idea of just-in-time scheduling and just-in-time supply. Can you talk a little bit about what that means?
2: Just-in-time was a concept that was, I, I would Probably put it back to 1990, Um, and uh, there were a group, uh, I I think, uh, mainly two main uh, MIT researchers. They set out to study the automotive industry, and they talked to all of the big automotive companies. And they, uh, they wanted to sort of pick and choose the best practices and write a book about it. After going around to all of the big uh, car makers, they came back and, and they said, look, the only one really worth talking about is Toyota because of their unique system called the Toyota production system. And um, one of the things that goes back um, to the Toyota production system is this idea of just-in-time. And uh, the the origin story I, I, I find really interesting because um, Toyota as a company didn't start off making cars they're they're much older than that so they made looms and their big invention was instead of having a loom go from right to left and left to right they thought well so going back and forth is really inefficient. Have it go in a circle and, and create a circular fabric, and, and it's much more efficient. So the circular loom is their big uh, claim to fame. But then after or during World War II, they started making cars for wartime production. And then after World War II, they, they thought, well, that's a much better business than looming machines. So they sent a group of engineers to the U.S., which was the pinnacle of automotive production. So they they landed in uh, California first, from Japan, and uh, they kind of saw some businesses. They saw a supermarket, um, and then they made their way to Detroit, and they saw the River Rouge plant of Ford, which was the marvel of automotive production at the time. They said, this is fantastic. We can't do it in Japan. We don't have the space. We don't have the land. We can't store all that stuff. So we need to think differently. And uh, th- then they remembered seeing the grocery stores in California where every morning you get fresh produce coming in. And then by the end of the day, all that produce is sold out. And and they, th- that inspired the just-in-time system um, where having stuff sitting around was seen as wasteful. Well, what is it sitting around? I mean, you- you're going to install this part into a car today, then... I want it delivered today. And then my supplier has to make sure it gets delivered today. And if, if he wants to be efficient, he's getting his raw materials delivered yesterday. So nobody is really holding any inventory. The only inventory is on a truck moving from one company to the next. So um, as during the 90s, uh, or starting in the late 70s, automotive uh, manufacturing, uh, or cars from japan became more popular in the u.s people started taking notice okay what are they doing differently than we are especially their quality was perceived as much much better so one one of these things was this idea of just in time because you had you couldn't afford errors you couldn't afford quality mistakes which ultimately added to a higher quality car in the end so that that's where it first came up and then Womack and Jones, uh, who uh, wrote the book, uh, The Machine That Changed the World, uh, picked up on that and really popularized that in the the U.S. I I would say it it probably was another 15, 20 years until that idea of just-in-time came into the healthcare field. I want to say in terms of academic literature and uh, uh, healthcare um, organizations looking into it. It was uh, after 2000 that they really picked up, maybe even to the mid-2000s. Um, but, but it became something as healthcare systems were looking at being more efficient, that, that was a very popular idea. So well, why keep all of these supplies around if you, if you can get items um, right to where they're needed just in time, um, it, it, it saves you from having all those warehouses. It saves you from uh, and th- just the, the clutter of stuff, uh, I, I should call it, just in layman's terms, makes things very hard to deal with. Um, if, if you go into a storage room and it's just you open the door and everything falls out, how are you going to find the one thing that you're looking for versus a system where everything is neatly put together and you find exactly what you need and it's hopefully always there, then uh, it it is much easier to live with. Uh.
1: So the other question that always comes up for me is, okay, I understand the clutter of stuff, but what were the other drivers in healthcare? Because we already have very high standards um, and we have very, very careful quality control. So the argument about quality of product is probably a little bit less in healthcare, but I wonder how it might tie to the finance of the supply chain.
2: Well, the uh, the big driver of just in time and the, the broader field of lean thinking, um, and that was the second one, Megan and John's book. Um, so 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 the idea is that. By being lean, you're also efficient financially. So, in other words, you can save money by being lean. And um, it's it, it, it's it's funny not to go off on a tangent, but um, I, I have a good friend who um, is is kind of in between the healthcare field and supply chain management. Um, and uh, I, I asked him once after getting an MRI, like. Well, you, you ran an MRI center. What, what would you say sort of the average cost of an MRI is? I said, well, I can't really, I, I, I can't really tell you. Like, but you ran an MRI center, and you don't know what it costs to administer an MRI? If you don't know, who does? So I, th- I think w- one of the issues in healthcare is that we uh, costs are very poorly understood, Revenue is predetermined in many ways, so you don't necessarily know whether what I'm charging a well an insurance company um, actually corresponds to the cost that I have um, administering that service very easily. Sometimes you do, but um, that, and and, and that, that conversation kind of strikes me as, as very odd because for a lot of companies that, outside of healthcare, that decision is very closely linked. And, and that's where we're also, when, when we're talking about uh, an area such as supply chain finance, that's what we're always trying to make sure. okay We want to understand picking an item out of a warehouse shelf and shipping it to a customer. We, we should know exactly the cost that is involved with that. So um, otherwise, how, how do we know what is efficient and what's inefficient?
0: And I think that's even more so. I mean, an MRI is about the simplest act within healthcare in terms of cost and and fairly simple supply chain you could get. Imagine doing an operation and staying in hospital for a week, including an intensive care unit, and then outpatient care. And you're absolutely right that understanding the cost of that is very poorly understood by many different people within the system. I'm really curious. I don't think people had thought too much about just-in-time within healthcare until COVID, but there were certainly aspects of it that were impacting us even before 2020. And so my question is, do you think that Folks who are involved in supply chain for healthcare recognize the uniqueness of some of the supply chain issues within healthcare.
2: Generally, and my perception is, uh, is mainly coming from my students that, uh, uh, that that are working in healthcare. And uh, where, where we're sitting, um, um, the broader healthcare field is is a fairly good percentage of uh, of our student base, anyways. Um, they 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 do and but they also when when we talk about let's say cases from other industries they're usually throwing up their hands and say well I wish I could do all of that it, it's usually my healthcare students and my students who are uh, working in the uh, uh, broader government area slash armed forces um, they're usually the ones I wish I could do that but
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's that that tension between the the regulation, the urgency and criticality of what's there, and applying the basic business principles that might apply to Amazon or your mom and pop store, right? Yeah. So I guess I'm I'm also curious. We saw the wheels absolutely fall off supply chain when it came to COVID, and particularly when it came to the availability of personal protective equipment and things like masks. And I think that informed a lot of the d- decisions that were made about, well, no one needs a mask, and oh, you you know, <laughs> grab a cloth mask and all this kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about when the wheels fall off the supply chain, particularly in critical infrastructure?
2: Yeah, so it, it's actually interesting because uh, back in February, I had uh, a uh, guest speaker from the state of New Jersey who was... Um, actually dealing exactly with that uh, issue. So um, he was responsible of coordinating usually emergency management type of activities. And and that's how I met him. Uh, We we actually studied uh, the recovery after Sandy, which I defined as, hey, that was a supply chain at work, getting the state of New Jersey back. Uh, to some sense of normal, you, you had to stand up an entire supply chain and make sure that, um, th- that the, the, the goods were available, they got where they needed to go to, and, and so on. Um, and, and the same thing obviously uh, happened with PPE, um, where nobody was thinking about uh, keeping inventories of, uh, of those items in that quantity, so um what what we saw with that at least in, in the example of New Jersey and and I even saw some of the numbers um it took until about summer where the the supplies were at a level that uh, was somewhat manageable so the the problem that everybody was having with PPE is this uh nagging thing, uh, what we call lead time. So the lead time is the time between me placing an order and the order being received. And the, the other problem is supply chains usually work like a train. So, so a train works its best at a certain speed. Um, I have about 10 minutes of train simulator training uh, in my life. So um, I, I was uh, <laughs> trying to see how fast I can get that thing going. So I got over seventy, and and, and they told me, yeah. well, you probably would have been fired by now. But uh, usually, what they want to do is keep it between sixty-five and seventy, uh, or something along that lines. Um, you, you drive it too fast, and obviously, it's dangerous. You go too slow, and then uh, you you start losing. Um, uh, some of your efficiency. And, and that's how supply chains want to work also. Uh, you you want to drive them at a certain speed. But now, all of a sudden, you want them to produce two times or three times as much as, uh, as, as they're used to. And, and uh, these changes are possible, but not in the time that it was required. So um, all, all of a sudden, you, you are shooting for... Triple and quadruple, 10x the supply, and that just isn't physically possible. Um, obviously, a lot, a lot of people got into the the game, and um, every grandmother was knitting masks and sewing masks, and and so on. So that that took a little bit of uh, of the strain off. Um, but the the ones that are required for for hospital settings, you, you just can't create manufacturing capacity. Uh, out of nowhere in no time. You can solve all those problems, but it needs to, to, to have some time. And that was the critical thing.
1: Yes, so it sounds like what we need to do is we need to have enough slack to be able to anticipate or ramp up. And that maybe that was part of the problem.
2: Well, so there, there, there are three ways in which you can um, size a manufacturing operation. You can take your average demand and, and basically build it for that average, and then have overtime uh, and under time um, to to smooth out those buffers. That's one option. You can um, build um, it for peak demand, which is what it was Wendy kind of was referring to. So you're usually operating at 30%, uh, but you can go up three x or you can uh find ways to have other companies chip in as needed so so you basically are, are relying on external uh, contract manufacturers to ramp up and down um and and, and th- those w- would be the only ways but there th- there's actually a fourth way and that would be to just keep a lot of inventory on hand
1: so, that's actually what i was referring to yeah.
2: so so <laughs> yeah. as as you are um as you are thinking about um, just-in-time, wh- wh- where we came from in our uh, production, the, uh, the one big um, m- idea about um, the Toyota production system, which then got translated into to lean, um, is this concept of waste. Probably the biggest waste is inventory. Because inventory is not earning you any money, and then uh, it's taking up, it's actually costing you money because it's taking up space. You have to have warehouses to to hold it. So um, th- that is the main reason why it looked so attractive to, to build a lean supply chain, uh, even in a healthcare setting, because it is significantly cheaper. So now, how, how do we deal with uh, with this increase of inventory? Um, is, is there something that can be done, um, let's say, at the national level where we have strategic petroleum reserves? Should we have strategic PPE reserves? I don't know. Um, I'm not a politician and don't aspire to be one, ever.
1: Yeah, so we do have, we have stockpiles in places like Barda where they're prepared for, you know, catastrophic occurrences. And what they do is they have rotating stock in those stockpiles. So it's the last in, last out, right? So the last thing that you bring into the warehouse stays the longest, but you continually rotate that stock so that it's always kind of in the supply chain, but it's almost like an eddy in the supply chain, right? So early on, we had the shortages of PPE. And I think as Omicron has hit, We've seen different challenges. It seems like the PPE is okay, but folks on the front line are starting to notice other shortages. You know, I heard a rumor that some folks were having a hard time finding prosthetics, like total joint prosthetics. Others are finding just everyday supplies difficult to get. And I wonder what you've seen from the beginning of the pandemic to now as Omicron is coming back and hitting really hard and maybe impacting the supply chain in a different way.
2: Yes, so, so the, and I shouldn't use the word interesting, but it is interesting. <laughs> um, the, the problem was, and, and, and remember the train that wants to go 65 miles an hour. In a lot of cases, we told companies, you know what, shut down production. Um, we, we, we basically had companies canceling orders. And I don't know if things like prosthetics, um, that, that is the reason it could be. Um, but we definitely, we have confirmation of that in the automotive industry. So if you're looking at car dealer lots, they look rather empty these (laughs) days and they're they're getting better, but, but they still look rather empty. And if if you dig into the reason, um, a lot of car plants were idled, which, uh, I worked one summer at, at a car plant, and they told me the one thing we never, ever do is idling. Um, mm. we, we don't shut down. Every, if, if we have to fly in a part on a helicopter and pay tens of thousands of dollars, we will do that before we shut down the line. We don't shut down the line. But they did, they did do, during the bit, beginning of the pandemic. And they also canceled orders to their suppliers because typically that's what you do. You don't want to... Just keep orders coming in uh, of all of these spare, uh, not spare parts, but parts that will be installed, uh, raw materials and sub-assemblies that will be installed into cars um, when you're not producing. Because, again, uh, you, you want to keep, uh, keep it all in balance. And the one critical thing was uh, computer chips that go into cars. And cars these days have many more computer chips than they used to. And the chip manufacturers said, okay, you cancel the order, that's fine, but I have a a whole host of new orders that I can get in making webcams for Zoom calls. So a lot of them started switching over to different level of technology, um, and the chips that uh, go into webcams are very different than the ones that go into cars. So, So now they have difficulty bringing those semiconductors back into production. So the, the, the balance of things was just very much disturbed um, by the pandemic and, and some, some of these decisions of shutting down plans, lockdowns, etc. cetera, et cetera. Um, and and it, it's still new, um, I guess, ripple effects are coming to light that we didn't even anticipate ahead of time.
0: So I, I have a question about, um, sort of a theoretical question. Let's, let's pretend you're the czar of the world. And I think we agree that having deficiencies of some things matter far more than others. Cereal, not such a big deal, but PPE or major medical supplies, obviously a, a really big deal. What could we do differently? What could we do better? What should we change for the pandemic that's going to hit us five years, 10 years, 15 years from now? What, what would we do better?
2: can we wait maybe and can we push the next pandemic to maybe 50 years or so? (laughs) I don't think I'm quite ready for it in (laughs) five to 10 or 15 years, but anyway. um,
0: (laughs) Totally good with uh, that.
2: So when there are a couple of, I I guess, universal principles when it comes to to supply chain management, the the one would be um, to to use multiple suppliers for everything. So, um, in general, and having studied that uh, in my dissertation a lot, in, in general, most uh, companies uh, are fairly comfortable with about three suppliers for the same items. And, and it's not that we're doing a third, a third, a third to each supplier. We're probably doing 70 to 80% on our main supplier, and then we have one at 20% and maybe one at 5 to 10%. So, so that we have three suppliers, but most of our suppliers come from our preferred supplier. But in, in case something happens to, to that supplier, we can switch over and, and we have two additional backups. I think as companies have gotten very comfortable with things being, being reliable and uh, being very predictable, that, that decision was easily re- reversed because... Usually the reason why you give your number two supplier less business is because they're probably a little bit more expensive um, or their quality is not where you would like it to be or a combination of, uh, of the two or other factors. So um, this uh, thinking of building in resilience was a little bit uh, less um, acute. Um, I, th- I think it, it is an interesting thing to, to consider. In in addition, you probably want those suppliers to be geographically dispersed. It doesn't help me much if it's uh, two factories that are sitting next to each other when uh, an earthquake is uh, putting them both out of commission. So um, you want some geographic dispersion. It probably doesn't help when uh, the majority of certain supplies are coming from one region, one country, Wherever it may be, not to to get into those types of decisions, but for example, China shutting down a port is is going to have an impact on the types of goods that uh, are coming over here. Us not being able to unload the the hundred or so container ships in LA Long Beach has also an impact. So... uh, I, th- I think we, we need more geographical dispersion of our entry points uh, for, uh, on, on the West Coast. So the, 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 this dispersion and uh, redundancy is, is one big topic.
0: And are these things that, uh, uh, this is not intended to be a political question, but it comes off as one, is this something that needs to be regulated or can free markets do this themselves successfully?
2: I I. I'm a believer and I have hope in the free market. Um, But we also have to consider how how did the economy as a whole kind of converge to the situation that we're in? Um, I think when leaders are making decisions, looking at only one factor, and, and, and they're um, not aware of other factors that could uh, be at play, um, I think uh, th- th- then we get imperfect decisions. obviously, uh, nobody remembers a situation like the last two years so so hopefully this uh, this will impact uh, decisions going forward. I mean we, we all remember uh, our grandparents uh, who lived through the big uh, uh, through the great depression um, had a very interesting way of handling things. They would never throw anything away, for example. Um, so that, uh, that experience informed their life going forward. So, so hopefully uh, a, a lot of the decision makers are looking at, at the situation now and are saying, okay, well, we, we need to rethink this. And we've seen growing um, trends in terms of companies that are saying, we don't want to be just in time. We want to be just in case. Um, so um, that, that, that is one change that I can clearly observe. And um, I, think, uh, I, th- I think that's a good sign.
0: It's interesting thinking how much as human beings we're good at preparing for what we've already seen or we know, but we're really bad at anticipating the craziest situation. And to bring up a horrible example, I mean, I think 9-11 is an example of that, where we were really good about preparing for the kinds of terrorism or the kinds of war that we were used to, but very bad about anticipating the kind of things that could happen and and may happen in the future.
2: Absolutely, that's a great example. Not always in the most comfortable way when you have to take your shoes every time you go through a metal detector, but...
1: So it sounds like one of the things you're saying is that the trend that we've seen of relentless consolidation getting bigger and bigger may not serve us as well as we hoped it might and that we might need to choose not to be quite so big not quite so efficient in order to be resilient and have backup plans
2: i mean the re- resilience is, uh, ha- has proven to be very important as a, as a topic so um, I, I think you could even say that s- s- size and resilience don't have to matter but usually uh, w- as organizations are getting bigger, w- one of the big benefits is that you can consolidate certain things. So um, for for example, procurement, you just need one procurement for an organization. Um, you, you don't need five different groups doing procurement, buying the same items. So obviously that's uh, that that's one of those uh, those things that, uh, where you consolidate. Th- there are also benefits with with size because now you're um, you can um, order bigger quantities. Bigger quantities mean bigger quantity discount. So so there there are benefits to that. And um, I I know group purchasing organizations are very popular in, uh, uh, amongst hospital groups, so they get the size through that. So, uh, so it's not even um we we, we j- just need to to look at multiple factors and uh i i, I know that uh, obviously um a sort of burnout and and things like that the impact uh, on on the actual workers is a topic in in your podcast and that's, um, th- that's usually something that's harder to control in a bigger organization. So you, you have to weigh all of these different topics uh, against each other and-, and hopefully come to a decision that, uh, th- that is a little bit uh, better than what you would have done otherwise.
0: So, Rudy, when we talk about how to prevent this happening, again, we often look at this a little bit selfishly from the point of view as the end user. A lot of us have had problems because of supply chain's failing or, or, or struggling. And as I talk to you, I start to think a little bit about the companies that st- suffered as well, because presumably there are PPE companies out there that actually went under or struggled or, or suffered because their own supply chains were messed up. They couldn't get the products they needed to make the product to ship out. They couldn't get them onto container ships to ship across to where they were needed. And so that brings me to the question, although I asked you before, should we regulate or will free markets manage this? Is there an incentive for these businesses to change the way they're using their own supply chain and do exactly what you were just talking about? Does this create an incentive for companies to do a better job of stockpiling or, or having geographical diversity in their own supply chains? I've, I've seen evidence from companies
2: that are starting to make these types of moves. So... Um, you, you do hear of companies opening new uh, manufacturing facilities and they happen to not be located in China. Um, it, it's it's sort of little steps. The main question is, is it fast enough? Is it radical enough? Um, th- that remains to be seen. But we're, we're starting to see evidence of, of people moving in, in that uh, direction for sure. I think uh, the... The, the other part that uh, we have to, to also consider is you, whenever you add more complexity to a supply chain, um, it becomes more difficult to manage. So um, it, the, the, there's a, there's a, a reason. If you, if I'm just dealing with Simon okay, the, the two of us can, uh, can probably come to a decision very quickly. And, and if, if we involve five other people, it, it takes longer and uh, it just becomes harder, even if, if the decision is really, where are we going to go to dinner type of stuff. Um, so, so you can see how it quickly can spiral out of control. And um, from a supply chain thinking, I remember um, – uh, one one of the books I was uh, helping to to write um, on on the back cover we had um, a quote from a senior supply chain professional and he said um, complexity in supply chains is a cancer that we all have to battle um, and trying to be deliberate in your decisions and and really make sure that you make the right decisions um, and and use it in good processes is is a way to uh, to combat this. So, yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, every, every decision has an unintended consequence and um, one of the, the, the reasons why maybe you shouldn't do it, but um, I, f- I think as, 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 as everything's a pendulum, I, th- I think uh, not having a lot of disruptions has lulled us in a false sense of security and, and will probably overcompensate and, and then hopefully we'll find uh, the middle ground somewhere. The encouraging thing for me is um, that, and, and that's for purely selfish reasons, that, that my students are going to have great careers um, going forward because I, I I used to tell people I'm a professor of supply chain management, and people were, would give me that no inquisitive look. Now at least everybody has heard the term, so that's a good thing. Um, and so, they realize how important you are. I mean, right. it's a, so, so right. for right. very selfish reasons, I want a lot of things to to,
0: to go wrong. And. Uh, empty shells and not no just just kidding. I, I, well, Rudy, I thank know. you. I mean, you you fill me with some hope that um that there are things that can be done and that people are thinking about this. So yeah. uh, we appreciate what you're doing in educating people, but also um very much the the ideas that things are moving forward.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm really glad that there are folks like you thinking about this all day every day.
0: Yeah,
2: we're trying. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me.
1: One of the things that Professor Leuchner was talking about, or pointing us in the direction of, is that as healthcare has consolidated, one of the ways that it's tried to reduce the complexity of the supply chain is by limiting the number of places where we get supplies. But as we've done that, it puts healthcare in a vulnerable position, because we don't have the redundancy that we need in something like the pandemic in a crisis. And maybe what we need to learn from this is that diversity is helpful in building organizational resilience. And also a critically important thing that when we look at challenges or when we look at our processes from only one perspective, we may lose some of the important information that we need to take into account as we're building an organization that can withstand crises.
0: Exactly, Wendy. uh, There are definitely things we can do better going forward. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios.
1: To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work that we do, you can make a donation while you're there.
0: Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation there. And you can help spread the word by sharing the episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: And stay well.